There is a voice within the deep, from the shadow side. There is a voice that's guiding me, a blister in my mind. I have a vision of a world where rodents roam, and I can see how the fabric weaves. The underworld and land of dreams embrace eternally. My soul is caught between. There is a voice enticing me into chasms still unknown. Feelings only act as gates. Fear is just a stepping stone. I must dance tonight with demons. Will they catch me off my beat? Madness seems to taste of freedom. There is a voice within the deep. Ladies and boyo men, welcome to the Red Book by Carlos Gustavus Jungus the Juicy. We are here to dive into the book where Jung confronts the voice within the deep and it ends up driving him insane. First, we must ask, why are we so attracted by these mystical books? Jung has plenty of theories. Jung has plenty of psychological models. And some people get into that and find great value in that. And there is great value in that. But I've noticed a lot of my friends, and me even myself, when we were growing up and first coming in contact with people like Carl Jung and, and Nietzsche, they have certain books that just stand out as charged, as magical, as mystical, as supreme. Nietzsche, of course, has a lot of brilliant books, but you always want to read Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Now, this is problematic because Thus Spoke Zarathustra is very hard to understand. Jung is the same. I remember I didn't understand anything about Jung, but one of my friends bought the red book and he showed it to me and I skipped straight to the pictures. I want to see all these vivid, imaginative pictures. And it's almost like there's a charge inside these ideas. And it's more the pictures that are like proof of concept. When you see these magical pictures, you're saying, yes, this man got somewhere and he brought something back. And now this book, this tome, this artifact is powerful. Like the way people approach the Bible, or you can imagine perhaps something like the Ten Commandments, this little strange set of tablets has power. And you can't quite uh, describe it, but you instinctively react towards it. You know, most philosophy is written down. It's full of jargon. It's full of concepts. It's full of reason. And it's brilliant. I don't discount that. But it doesn't, it doesn't trigger your instinctive awe like this type of stuff. Blake's Illuminated Works, Dante's Inferno, Paradise Lost by John Milton, Homer's Iliad. All the same as Zarathustra and the Red Book. They all have this prestige. And I'm not even sure if it's something that's built up. It's something that is triggered in you, especially when you see the pictures. Now, what's going on there? What's, what's, what's happening here? Why do we have such, such reverence for the colourful, for the, the aesthetic, for the, the visionary, the thing that can make you see? Like, it's one thing for me to write a thesis about hell. It's another thing for, for you, to, as Dante, to take my hand and walk me through hell and show me hell. Very, very interesting. And it, it does tie a lot into the way that we use our brains. Um, our rational theories are almost juxtaposed against the insanity of visions, the insanity of the emotionally charged visual world. 
And as much as we'd like ourselves to be more reasonable and listen to the theories, we still honour the insane visions. The colourful schizophrenic is something that we want to listen to and we want to hear those theories even though we don't want to be the person. But the grey and neurotic rationality is something that we kind of actually naturally have disgust for. Someone explaining to you their ideas. No one, you kind of get turned off. It's, it's not a good energy. It's like, oh, here's all, here's all this talk. Here's all these words. Here's all this, nim, 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 this type of thing. And you're like, I don't want to hear it. Now, that is strange because, of course, the way that we coordinate ourselves in the world right now is we say, oh, well, like, you know, you must be rational. You must be very scientific. You must, you must explain things with complex jargon or else you're not an expert. You don't know what you're talking about. But we tend to favor this vision side of things. We tend to prefer to watch the movie instead of read the, the theories. We'd rather watch the biography of Jung instead of read Jung's theories directly because there's something about the, the colourful, emotional, story-told humanness of these things that trigger us. Now, the problem is, of course, is that both have their biases, like the colourful schizophrenic is schizophrenic on some level. The grey and neurotic rationalist is neurotic, is stiff, is stuck in his head. And these all have issues. And what this book is, and what's so brilliant about it, because it's a very sincere and honest exploration, Jung's not really telling you. He's not saying, all right, guys, you must uh, take me very, very seriously here. I've um, made a very, very serious book that you almost um, take me serious and, and say I'm a good scientist. He, he sort of has to say to himself, look, look dudes, <laughs> this, this is a bit crazy, man. Like, this is why it only got released recently. It's a bit crazy. I don't think you're going to take me serious for it, but um, I, I have to put it out there. I have to be honest. I went through this and there's something amazing about it that you need to understand. And this, as we're going to explore a lot more, is so much more sincere towards how your life works. Like, we're not a list of things. I'm not like my job, my how much money I have in the bank. As they say in Fight Club, I'm not uh, my clothes, my car. I'm not any of those things. I'm not this, you know, neurotic list that I put up there, that I've put together. It's like, I'm all these things. I've constructed the persona that I need to be. It's, it's not like that at all. Your actual experience, if you brush all that stuff aside and pay attention to your actual experience, you know, you have dreams every night. You have all these fantasies fantasies and delusions during the day, you have all these these memories and associations that come flooding in at any one moment when you're having a conversation with someone. It may seem like words on the surface, but underneath it, there's these rich, charged emotional reactions. Once you know, you're talking to someone over tea and they say, oh, I broke up with my girlfriend. And your next response might be, oh, that's terrible. What happened? But what might have happened in your head in that fraction of a moment is you might have remembered the last time you had a girlfriend when you broke up with her and you're going through this cringe in your heart. And then there's this scene that flashes in your head when you were talking to her. And then suddenly you're sucked back and you reply this. There's so much more richness to your reality. And it's kind of interesting. What happens if you explore that? And so what happened to Jung is that he, he had achieved everything. He had become the, the big juicy boy walking around do, doing all the lectures. And he had become prestigious. He was hanging out with Freud and Freud, Freud had got everything in order. And so everybody was paying attention to him. And he, had the, he sort of had the, the prestige of science underneath him. And then he started to have a sort of crack. Things, these, these visions that, that happen to us all, all the time, this, this visual side of us, this other part of our mind, started to butt in a little bit, aggressively. Started to say to him, you need to take a look here, brother. And so one of the first things he will say in the Red Book is, I had achieved everything that I had wished for myself. I had achieved honour, power, wealth, knowledge, and every human happiness. And he said it like that as well. <laughs> Now, what you will notice is that 
as I said, the, the grey, stiff, neurotic, rational mind is the paradigm we're in. We don't live in, you know, ancient Greece where you could run around and be like, Dionysus got me there last night, man. <laughs> I went absolutely baloney's, man. Like, I, I, he actually took me and I went mad. And I sure, I got with a load of maenads, man. He just, oh, it was absolutely crazy stuff. You can't really, you can't really bring that forward to, you know, polite society and say, take me serious. So you have to present yourself as like the rational neurotic scientist. A lot of Jung's public works up until the Red Book were very, very straightforward, rational presented in a sense of like take me serious very full of jargon actually very hard to read i believe whereas this red book is a a lot different of an experience and it's something that he kept back and he was very conscious of that because he wanted to be a scientist he wanted to be taken serious he wanted to contribute towards the body of knowledge science means knowledge it means like that group knowledge but um he knew that this was important but he had to keep it out and so he said if i speak in the spirit of this time I must say, no one and nothing can justify what I must proclaim to you. Stification is superfluous to me. And I like the use of heavy jargon there. Stification. It's juicy, young. I have learned that in addition to the spirit of this time, there is still another spirit at work. Namely, that which rules the depths of everything contemporary. Now, let's explore this, because he's saying some strange things here. What is the spirit of the time? What is the spirit of the depths? What's what's going on here? What What is he suggesting? Like, you're just pulling, like, this is, this is jargon. What does this mean? Well, I guess in order for you to understand, we have to talk a little bit more about your mind. We have to get into the actual psychology, and maybe we can even sprinkle some modern neuroscience to help us with this. There's There's a part of your mind that I just said, the more visual part of your mind, that is... Not dumb, you know? When you go to sleep, okay, you turn off the smart, rational, grey, neurotic mind that you present to the world, the conscious mind, but something still happens. Your dreams still come to you. So when you're running around there all day and you're you're labeling everything and your your neurotic mind is coming in and being like, okay, do this, do this, this is, here's your list of things to do today, here's the list of what you are, are these people judging you and all this stuff? And as I said, very subtly underneath that, there's this sort of visual mind trickling away fantasies, but you usually don't notice that, but it's there. And then when you go to sleep, that front mind, the, the you, the thing that you think is you, it, it shuts off, it goes, it's gone. And um you would imagine then what would happen is everything shuts off. And that's what it feels like, especially when you're not in the habit of paying attention. It feels like you you vanish and then you just appear and eight hours have gone by, you've time traveled. But if you actually be honest and think about it, what actually happens is even though you don't remember it too well, there's a vague um, replacement that goes on. So this thing turns off and then there's this very, very sleepy eye in the back of your head or something like that, the, the observer, the deep observer that sits there and then now that the front mind has gone off the noise making mind the neurotic mind now that that's gone off the day mind has gone there's blackness so it just sort of says all right whatever i'll just stare at this black screen for a while and then out of nowhere these vague images start to become more prominent they start to take up the space the conscious mind has left and this and you start to see it You're, this thing is still paying attention to it so so what are we starting to understand about our mind here that's so strange for example, I remember um, writing something down once that said, Though everything I see and taste is always changing, the eye within the watches stays the same. Now, what does that mean? Because we have this weird thing where we identify, you've heard this from the New Agers, we identify with the thinking mind, the talking mind, the voice in your head. 
diggle, 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 da, 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 talk, 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 talk. This is me, conscious mind, walking around, saying what I am. And what you'll realize is that you get caught up in that, you get absorbed at that, it can make you quite anxious, but it's not actually you. There's this thing behind that that observes that. So this talking mind in front of you, and then the world. So the world is out there, you're observing that, but if you'll notice that your speaking mind is also in front of whatever this observing mind is, and the observing mind is like deep and quiet, and it sees. And when you go to sleep and the thinking mind sort of turns off, the observing mind's still vaguely there. What the hell is that? Is that the, the self Jung was talking about? What the hell is that thing? <laughs> oh my God. Because it's there and it's the thing that you call you, even though you're calling the other part of you, you as well. We're, we're confusing things. And um, this starts to set up a very, very interesting set of problems because you start asking yourself, wait a second now. So this conscious mind that's so smart and knows everything is not actually me. It's not actually the, <laughs> it's not actually the, the deep thing that's there when I go to sleep. It turns, it, it vanishes in a sense. But there's still something there, and the dreams are there, and the dreams that it give, these visions, these dreams, this deep mind is, is there as well, and it's, it's not exactly incoherent and dumb. Now this becomes very problematic. Dreams, especially when you sit down and you work with them properly and you kind of pull them out, like they're not, they're not maybe, some people might hype them up in a certain way, it's like, what, what, is, what does a card in my dream mean? But there's something to them. Like I've done it with plenty of people, I've done it with myself a lot. They are smart. You know, it's like the way, it's almost like a different form of thinking. Like the way the mainstream media can tell you a lot about what's going on in the news from, from headlines. Oh, bad things happening, good things happening, bad things happening, good things happening. But then, for example, if you watch a movie, a movie can be commenting about very similar themes, but coming from a much different angle, a more narrative angle. So different that you don't even realize you're getting information from the movie. You might not treat the movie seriously, but it is actually giving you a signal of the time. And it's the similar with dreams. Dreams may not be as straightforward as the, the mainstream media, the, the news articles, but they're, they're very vivid and very explanatory and very intelligent. And that becomes a serious issue because you have this talking conscious mind at the front and this, this dreaming mind at the back and the dreaming mind has power. It, it is doing something good. Now I'm brushing the theory for you because I'm going to get into the neuroscience later. There's a lot to back this, a lot to back this up. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But just to paint the picture for you of what Jung was going through, because you can imagine this like Jung has simply just let the dreaming mind take over. Or maybe the dreaming mind weirdly decided to take over. And so this dreaming mind has an intelligence of sorts. How intelligent? It's kind of cool to think, all right, the dreaming mind just sorts me out and makes me feel good and gives me advice from my day-to-day -day life, but what if we could give you more advice than just your day-to-day -day life? Jung opens the Red Book with an Isaiah quote from the Bible. Isaiah essentially predicted the idea that this archetype of a Messiah who would die for our sins would appear. Very interesting thing, because that's what happened in the Bible, you know, that was the big story. It's like Jesus walked around and said, I have been predicted. I am here to fulfill the prophecies. So what the hell is a prophecy? What is, what is all this stuff? It's not very scientific, but maybe we should explore it with open minds since we're so scientific and smart. We'll be able to destroy it if it's full of crap. So let's do that. Let's see what happens. And Jung setting up the agenda says, well, Isaiah told us, who has believed our report? Who will the Lord choose to reveal his plan to? Will the Lord grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground? He had no stately form or majesty to attract us, no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Well, isn't that what Christ was, the humiliated Savior? And to paint the reason why all this matters is because this deep mind, which we say, or oh, might help us during the day to make, you know, make help us make better decisions, which is handy. Um, it could, it could have more power. For all we know, I don't, I don't really know. If you want to think about this in more modern terms, imagine it like a supercomputer, like a, a Google AI artificial intelligence that's taking in all the patterns and sorting out all the patterns and trying to predict what's going on around. And it might be able to make very accurate future predictions. Maybe, like for example, we're in the pandemic right now, so maybe all the AI was pulling in all the stuff, saying, "Oh my God, there's probably going to be a pandemic at some point, so maybe we should get prepared for it." And maybe people are making plans for that beforehand. And so maybe your mind can do the same thing. Maybe the supercomputer in your head, which it is, it is one of the best computers we have and probably the best. It can do amazing things. And so how much could it see before it happened? And how much can it detect these super patterns and predict where things are going to go? And so, of course, Jung started having this break at a time when the Europeans saw themselves as having conquered the entire world. They have colonized the world. They've established a global world kingdom of Christendom. They were about. To, they brought civilization to everywhere, and they are standing there now with their science. They're about to throw off superstition entirely. Enlightened, standing there with their science, and now they're on the cusp, on the cusp of turning around and figuring out everything. They're going to use psychology to see inside the mind, and boom, theory of everything. They've achieved everything. What could possibly go wrong? And this was when Jung started having this right at the end of that dream, when that bubble was about to get burst. Jung started to realize that our zeitgeist, our paradigm, our perspective, our way of seeing things, our idea that we're rational and we've got everything figured out, we're about to, you know, figure out the world and land the kingdom of God, you know, just safely drop it down on this earth, was about to fall. And he was eerily correct. Because just after this happened, World War I kicked off. Jung started having these visions in 1913. Now, World War I kicked off in 1914. It's hard for us to understand because we're so obsessed with World War II. Oh, World War II, big and bad and all that. But World War I was where it all went down because World War I was the big paradigm shift. There was this idea that, well, we had done so well. Maybe there's even this feeling that war is all over. We're too rational to, to ever have problems with this. And then people like Freud, Freud, for example, comes and says, underneath society is these vicious, aggressive, dangerous urges that we have to be very careful because they're going to come out and destroy us. And Jung's noting, noticing this from a slightly different angle. He's noticing that our pride, our arrogance or scientific arrogance makes us think that you know our conquest of matter and machines is is going to give us so much power that we won't have problems like this and and there's no reason us us humans us proud humans will never get embarrassed you know we'll never get humiliated we are the glorious beings of this earth and Jung is trying to suggest like the humiliated savior that we've got to be very careful because these machines these this power that we have could very easily turn on us. And that's actually exactly what World War I was like for people. This arrogance, very similar to us. We have 70 years of thinking nothing could ever go wrong with us, you know, globalizing the world. And then something like the pandemic happens and kind of puts a, a halt on all of that stuff. 
It's the same with this. We, we just thought nothing could go wrong. We can just keep building these monstrous machines. And then suddenly we start a war. And then a young man like myself is given, given the gun and be like, oh, you get to fight a war. Remember what wars were like? You see all the pictures of Napoleon and it's all, oh, cool. So oh, you go to kill people and you, you look like a badass, you know. And those wars back in the day were fought between professional armies. So it was like a very much like a sports game. Like it's a very, very similar idea. It, it, the people didn't really do much. It was more like the the elite sports professionals would train for it and then it would be a sort of, you know, gentleman's club and be like, oh, well fought, sir, well fought, well fought. This war was different. This war, young men like myself who had nothing to do with the army were handed guns and we charged into trenches and we were killed. We were we were essentially put into mincemeat. We were, we were slaughtered to the tune of hundreds of thousands, sometimes per day, for the sake of inches of grass that had no real conceptual meaning at all it was like what are we we restructuring the map we're not even restructuring the map that much like what the hell is going on here and then this 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 sort of insanity of why it was happening was tied with the sheer inhumanity and i mean in the sense that it was humiliating it's humiliating to think that a machine would come in like a machine gun and just literally end 50 to 100 lives in a minute without even a second thought. It's like, what, what's the point? Well, it's, it, these, these people aren't important. Now, this is a big bubble burst to the arrogance that was coming into this. The rational, important, enlightened humans are now getting churned away, eaten away, chewed up. And then things like tanks show up and shelling, artillery, you know? Like, what, 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 what place, what purpose does a, a little man, a human, have in the face of a sky of a million shells. Some places shot a million shells before they would have a charge and whatnot. How irrelevant do you become when you can just be blown to smithereens, literally, to the point where you don't exist anymore? Your body just vanishes in an inferno of, of shrapnel and explosions. And it kind of points to something quite interesting that is very, very topical right now, is uh, our struggle with technology. Because, you know, when the chariot showed up, Europe changed. When the machine gun showed up, Europe changed. Now we have the same problems with uh, iPhones. And I'm going to talk a little bit about, about Elon Musk to give you more context towards what's happening with us. But basically, I want you to understand the humbling, the reason why they shook Young so much. Because you can imagine Young as like, you know, like Elon Musk, the king of his era. He's got this like huge, big, prestigious movement he's a part of. And then suddenly he starts having these visions that everything is going to go bad. Imagine Elon thinking, oh my God. Oh my God, the, the machine's going to come. The machine's going to come and kill us all. Like he's talking about artificial intelligence. Whereas, whereas Jung is thinking very, very similar. He's like, oh my God, oh my God. Freud, Freud, this is, this is we're, we're too arrogant. We're all going to get chewed up and spat out like little little machines. We need, there's something wrong psychologically. We've, we've, there's something dangerous happening. And Freud's like, shut up, dude. What, what are you thinking? And everybody around them is kind of thinking, dude, what's going on? Where's your, where's your rational basis for this? And it's like, oh no, I'm having visions. And of course, the paradigm doesn't accept the visions. That's just irrational, superstitious nonsense. Visions. Well, what can that tell us about everything? But of course, when you read the Red Book, Jung says he started having the visions of blood flowing across the hills of Europe in 1913. He, he had visions of princes getting shot. How did World War I get, get started? How did World War I get started? It was the, the murder of a prince. That type of thing. So here's a quote. Filled with human pride and blinded by the presumptuous spirit of the times, I long sought to hold that other spirit a 
away from me. The spirit of the depths has subjugated all pride and arrogance to the power of judgment. He took away my belief in science. He robbed me of the joy of explaining and ordering things. He let devotion to the ideals of this time die out in me. He forced me down to the last and simplest things. Jung got humbled in his mind by this dreaming mind. So you hear what I'm saying? This part of your mind that has this vague intelligence that we sort of understand but we don't really think about too much because it makes it go crazy started to present him with these ideas that we're going to get humbled and and then and then young and then it happened and young's thinking what the hell did i just see in my head wait a second did my dreaming mind my supercomputer did, did it, it didn't it didn't predict this and how would he tell anybody hey uh, i predicted world war one <laughs> me you know i predicted world war one it's like uh okay whatever dude <laughs> cool man cool and then of course in the Einstein of history you could even say that and people would be like yeah but everybody saw it coming because <laughs> you will look back at the pandemic thing now and we'll all be like ah yeah but sure you know everybody could see it coming sure everybody could see it coming months beforehand you know it's never like that though there's always the there's always the the bend of the curve like to give you an example i'll, I'll give you elon juicy elon here, here with joe and just listen to him talk about art, artificial intelligence especially listen to joe absolutely screw up the the emotional tension this could have been one of the greatest scenes in, in modern history on the internet and joe uh, joe cracks it a bit so this is funny what happened with you where you decided or you be, took on a more fatalistic attitude like what was there any specific thing or was it just the inevitability of our future deep thoughts of Elon. You can see the future. I try to convince people to slow down, slow down AI, to regulate AI. This was futile. I tried for years. This seems Nobody like a listened. scene in a movie. Nobody <laughs> listened. Robots are going to fucking take over and you're freaking me out. Nobody listened. Nobody listened. <laughs> no one. Are people more inclined to listen today? It seems like an issue that's brought up more often over the last few years than it was maybe five, ten years ago. It seemed like science fiction. Maybe they will. So far, they haven't. I think people don't, like, the, normally the way that regulations work is very slow. So this is basically Elon saying... You know, he's an expert in his field at the very top and he can see problems. He starts talking about how seatbelts took a long time to get people to pay attention to, you know, took a long time for people to, to for, for the industry to sort of say, all right, well, all right, well, we'll, we'll do, we'll do seatbelts. All right, fair enough. All right, everyone doesn't have to die for the sake of us making the cash and all that. But he, he's suggesting no one's listening to me. No one cares about me. No, no one wants to listen to me. They, they want to just keep on running, you know, brr, <laughs> machine goes brr, like keep, keep it going. They want to just get it done. And um and, and there's there's immense problems with artificial intelligence. Like, what happens if you centralize a machine that gets in its head, a supercomputer that r analyzes everything, and said, "Oh no, these these all these humans are polluting the environment." Delete. <laughs> like, what happens there? And like, you, you know, this this is something that's very abstract and, and and difficult. Like AI, it's very difficult for us to to really get a comprehension of. You know, it's 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 too abstract. It feels futuristic and distant. It would be like someone like Jung saying, "Oh, we might be running into a war if we're not careful." And you know, you tell that to Freud, and Freud has forty things going on in his life at the time. He's trying to get psychoanalysis, and he's like, "Jesus, Carl, I don't want to have to hear this nonsense right now. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about?" 
what the hell am I going to do about world war and super world war and all this stuff and your visions? Like, I'm sorry, man, but like, I can't do much about it. It seems too in, 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 inconsequential. You know, you might have said to someone five months ago, oh, there's a, there's, there's something going on in China. Like, we should be careful and all that. But they'd be like, dude, I've got like work. My, my girlfriend's annoying me. Like, you know, I've, I've, I need a bit more cash. I have to pay rent. Like, you know, what am I going to do about the China thing? Like, well, you want me to start stocking up or you want me to start getting masks or something? Come on, man. Like, no, like, look, it's not, it's not a big deal. But then it hits and then suddenly it is a big deal. And then suddenly it's your reality. Your reality shifts. And the people who can see that beforehand, the, the outliners who are standing there and can see the visionary stuff. What does that mean? What's going on there? And so Plans take a look at this. A global leader in artificial intelligence. It has enabled a cashless economy where people make purchases with their faces. A giant network of surveillance cameras with facial recognition helps police monitor citizens. Meanwhile, some schools offer glimpses of what the future of high-tech education in the country might look like. That's Classrooms it. have robots that analyze students' health and engagement levels. That's it. Students get... wear uniforms with chips that track their locations. There are even surveillance cameras that monitor how often students check their phones or yawn during classes. These gadgets have, to... have alarmed <laughs> Chinese netizens. I'm gonna have to get one of those for the boyos. So when you're watching me and you start to, you say, I see, I see a yawn. It'll be like flash, it'll be like, boy alert. <laughs> no boy sleep, boy alert. That's coming, lads. That's coming. That's going to be the big thing. I'll, we'll create this centralized boyo hub of artificial intelligence and it'll just be like, you're not paying attention. Sorry, delete. And then it'll be, it'll be anti-boyoed. It'll be de-boyoed. You'll be, you'll be unboyoed. <laughs> 1980 boyo. That's what's going to go, be going on around here. Um, and so you see, you see the, the reason why people be afraid of something like this. Like this, this is a super, super intricate, you know, super alive um, machine like all these cameras around that can analyze and detect your emotions and, and, and probably knows more about you than you do, you know, is more aware of what's going wrong with you than you are. And you, you become a part of that. And what happens if the centralized machine, as we said, like Skynet just says, oh, these humans are the worst, delete. And then suddenly it, it knows how to kill all these people and it sends out the little iron drones that goes and kills them all. And maybe there needs to be, you know, put the pedal on that because it seems ridiculous now. It seems ridiculous now, just like it would have seemed ridiculous to say these machines that we're building, this science that we have is going to chew up an entire generation of men and turn them into like literal, like mince meat in these dugout rat infested holes in the middle of France. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't have made any sense to someone, but it could, it happened, you know, it came around the corner in the end. And suddenly we were radically humbled and it didn't, it didn't just go away. Then it led to World War Two. And it, it fundamentally changed the world and millions and millions and millions of people died. It destroyed Europe, ripped Europe's soul out. Europe went from the, 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 the ruling place in the world. England literally had the biggest empire in world history. And by the end of World War II, it was a ruined city. Sorry, a ruined country with no empire. The empire was gone, you know? Like Ireland was an English colony at the start of the 1900s. It was free by the end of World War II. So what's going on with all this stuff? Like, how how are we supposed to react to this? What are we supposed to do? And the problem is, of course, the zeitgeist. Deep, like, someone like Elon Musk can see this stuff coming. He has maybe deep emotions about this. He can sort of see this, and maybe something in him tells him, be careful, be careful, put the word out, be careful. 
And Jung was maybe the same. Like he, he was part of the the established zeitgeist. You know, the, the where the the collective consensus mind is. That's the you know because everybody's well fed and there's no problems. Everybody's saying, "Yo, we're winning, man. No need to worry." The arrogance of the day, like Freud and all that. We're rational. We're the kings of the world. We we've no need to worry. Everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's good. And then someone like Jung starts getting these dreams from the instinct mind, from the deep mind, from the supercomputer, and it's saying, "Be careful." Same with Elon. Be careful. Something is going to happen that you're not going to like. And so here is a brilliant model of uh, how this works. You've got the zeitgeist. The scientific experts on TV said that I'm happy today. I'm so lucky. I felt depressed all last month. Thank God. Thank God we're winning. Thank God consensus is good. Oh, this is excellent. Reddit tier thinking. But of course you have the horseshoe theory, the, the unity of the, the profound power of the instincts. Mate, I trust my instincts. If it worked for me, grand, it will work for me. Simple as. And then, of course, Nietzsche and Jung saying, it is perfectly rational to trust your deep instincts since they evolved through generations of evolutionary pressure. These are all d direct quotes, would you believe? Direct quotes from various boils around, around the globe. And so this, this is the, the issue of the, the consensus mind, of the, the paradigm, of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. That's what that means. And you have this issue where this is very, very close to the idea of the collective, the collective thinking, the hive mind. And the hive mind isn't always right, you know. The hive mind walked into World War One. It could also walk into artificial intelligence, you know, d deletion program or something like that. You don't know. You don't know how to trust these things. And you, you have something else that's outside of this because this tends to be made up of like the, you know the rational set of concepts that the conscious set of concepts that we've established as acceptable, the paradigm as they know in science. But but you are a bit different. There's something in you that's a bit different. It's very actually neurologically similar to the way that your mind works you have a paradigm a conscious paradigm that you think makes up your world your reality this is what i am my persona this is my ego if you want to use it that way this is what i am i'm all these concepts that i've decorated i'm this car i'm this house i'm this job i'm this person and you've got it all put together and it's like i'm i'm happy i'm proud of that i know what i am but of course that's not necessarily the truth there's something deeper to things something that you're not in control of something out of your control and this is the scary thing. We're like right now, we, we think we're the best we are in the world. And I'm sure people 400, 500, 10, a thousand years ago thought that they, during their paradigm, were like, we're the correct righteous ones. You know, we all laugh at the church now, but obviously back when the church was winning, the church thought that they were the, the cutting edge of civilization, the cutting edge of progress and truth. And it's hard. It's hard to see outside your collective bias. This is why Nietzsche and Jung would often say you need a historical sense. You need to know your place in history, your problems. You need to be able to see your collective with an objective mind. And it's very hard to do that. And of course, the big question is, there is this under hidden realm of visions and words that are like sparking and speaking to us, saying to us, whispering to us, appearing to us. As I said, these fantasies show up between words when you're having these conversations and you don't even notice them like dreams. But they do have something to them. They're not stupid. This zeitgeist mind, this, this collective mind, this consensus mind, this groupthink tells you that those things are irrelevant, especially today. This is Jung's big fear of the scientific paradigm is that it says, oh, that, that, that instinctive dreaming mind is irrelevant, is stupid, is superstitious. Don't listen to it. And Jung, of course, going through this experience he writes down in the Red Book is sort of saying, man, that, that dreaming mind predicted something that happened to me. I don't think we should dismiss that. There's something to that. 
I think we should take this extremely seriously. But of course, no one wants to hear it because Jung's a quack or, you know, that's irrational or where's your mechanism, you know, where's your evidence, all this type of stuff. And so all I can do is present you the picture, but I guess I'll try to give the science a bit of a smack because there is a lot to the science behind this, especially recently, that supports some of Jung's theses. And of course, we're going to use extremely sophisticated um, drawings. We're going to show you, <laughs> we're going to show you exactly how your mind works with these these brilliant, brilliant drawings that I've made. But the thing I want you to understand is essentially that picture I'm painting of the conscious mind, the ego that walks around during the day and has consciously put together the world that you understand. And that becomes your, as Jordan Peterson says, your world of order, man, your palace of order, your garden of order. And there's chaos out there, man. You've got to be careful. That's okay. That's there. That exists. And when you go to sleep, that vanishes. It, something turns off and there's, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit. And then the deep mind is there as well, but it's not the same thing. It's actually something underneath, like this, 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 this other part, you know. And then there's this sort of watching mind as well that's related to it. If you want to think about it with this type of metaphor, imagine a cinema. So you have the 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 deep watcher, and then you have the the screen, and the screen is sort of where the contents are getting projected onto it. And then you have like the critic, who's who's the rational conscious mind who thinks he understands what's going on, but actually a lot of stuff is getting projected from this vague thing in the back, and that might be your dreaming mind. And you are listening to the critic, thinking that the critic is your opinion. The critic is there being like, oh, this is a silly movie or something. And you're listening to him being like, all right, he's, he's reality. But actually you are just quietly watching, and that's actually what you are. And you, you forget that you are you, often. You, you think you're the critic. It's very strange. And what you could do is actually just ignore the critic and pay attention straight away, directly to what the dreaming mind is saying. And what would it tell you? But of course, the critic says, the dreaming mind's stupid. <laughs> the films it makes are stupid and meaningless and superstitious. Never listen to them. And so um, this is hard because your conscious mind is this critic and it tricks you a lot. And it has this arrogance and this, I'm above all this dream stuff. Oh, it's all silly. It's all nonsense. But there's ways that you get shoved into this. If you ever take psychedelics, no one denies the psychedelic experience. It, it, it has power. I don't know what it is. I don't know, is it good? I, I'd, I'd actually recommend against it usually. But it has power. It most certainly brings you there. Strong emotions do the same. Dreams do the same. For As I said, if you're talking about like to your friend about divorce or a girlfriend or a breakup and all that, those strong emotions will flash images to you. And they're glimpses of this dreaming, memory-rich, imaginative mind. It's, 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 that's how it happens. You know, it's there. And then dreams just naturally do it. Every single night, you will just, it will churn out seven dreams a night on average, apparently. And so there's like a doorway between the two, or, or maybe it's a different focus thing, whatever you want to say. But there is a consciousness, an awareness in our collective unconscious, if you will, in our collective being, that there is a, 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 a two worlds going on. There is this conscious world that we walk around, the, the, the way we see, the, we talk about ourselves, but there is this other place, this, this underworld, this dream world. And we were always told, we can go there. All the myths have the story of the doorway. You know, the, the, in Ireland, we have the fairies. They're the magic people. And they live inside little mounds or little caves. And the caves are the doorway. In Harry Potter, you have the train platform that brings you into the, the, the train that takes you to Hogwarts, the magic world. In Narnia, you have the wardrobe. You open the wardrobe and you step in. And it's very similar with your head. You get caught up in normal reality. 
You know, there's your archetype, normal reality, conscious reality, day-to-day, grey, neurotic, boring reality. People are saying, oh, world's kind of boring, you know, I'm bored, oh, it's all the same, it's all routine. And so you walk around in that bored, sameness, routine, nothing new. And you could, those little flashes that happen even when you're awake or asleep, you could just give them more attention. That little cringe of emotion that you brush over during that conversation about that boyfriend or girlfriend or breakup, you could give it some, you could look at it and it would flood forward more and it'd be extremely difficult. This is the reason why you don't do it because it's, it's charged with difficult emotions. These, these hurt, it hurts to accept what's tied to these ideas. So you skip over them. You're like, oh no, pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> oh no, I better look over that. No, that's, that's not a, no, that's not good. No, I don't like that. I'll go back to conscious reality because it's comfortable, the comfort zone. And I guess you could ask if you let this stuff flood out, where would it take you? What would it show you? And of course, the Red Book is a document of what it showed Jung. And the Red Book is even more interesting because Jung's suggesting that he didn't ask it, that it bullied its way into his reality. What would you do if that happened to you? So let's look at this this thesis I'm talking about. Like, there's very, very interesting ways that your brain works. You do sort of have there's there's two ways that we can describe your brain i'm going to use both of them because they're both useful we can talk about the front mind and the back mind okay so the back mind is more visual more imaginative it is the posterior world now the front mind and you can see the boyo's head up here this is actually where a lot of where you get the concept of rationality the self the active mind the, the back mind is a lot more observant even in for example with your language centers you've got the Broca's area which creates words and moves your mouth and you've got the Wernick's area which um, which understands words which perceives words so you could get a head injury and lose the ability to speak but you could still understand you could get the opposite you could lose the ability to understand words but still speak like you could lose the ability to read but still talk or write even. It's very, very interesting. So your brain is not like a straightforward thing. It has zones. It has areas. It has parts of it, you know? And then when you look at different brain tasks, when you're, you're you know, you're just talking in a rational, conscious way, to, to back up everything we're talking about here, it seems that you, you don't actually engage that much of your brain. You just tend to have like an, an over and back jargon talk that uses a lot of your front mind that's in control of the language, that type of thing. But then if you had this rich, vivid, story-told, imaginative talk, it would actually trigger more parts of it. If you sit down with someone and say, visualize a banana growing big and small, you know, this would turn on a lot of parts of your brain. It would spark your brain up. You can see it here. This is the brain scan. You have all these parts of your brain working together in unison. So do you know that um, meme? Oh, we only use 10% of our brain. Probably a bit crap. Like, it's probably not true. We tend to use our brain in very complex ways, a very complex thing, but there, there, there is a little bit to it in the sense that there are parts of our brain that we don't use as much as other parts. Or maybe there's modes or ways that we could use our brain that would be more integral, more complete, more whole, our, our more imaginative way of looking at things. For example, people write books about philosophy, about theories, about ideas, and we might make the mistake of making a very front brain, very, you know, rational, jargon, difficult to read, dense. Interesting stuff, very, very useful, very, very cool. But it's nothing compared to the attraction, the understanding, the completeness, the wholeness, the comprehensiveness of something like the Red Book of Dante's Inferno of Zarathustra. It's like a superior form of delivering these ideas. It's a very, very interesting thing. And maybe it's down to the fact that it uses a superior amount of your brain. It uses more of your brain. 
back here is where you store all your visual processing. Do you see this big red bit, this big green bit? And if you're just listening on a podcast, basically the whole arse of the brain is just sparked up with this big red blob and this big green blob because that's where you process a lot of your visuals. And so when you're imagining, you turn on the visual mind. You close your eyes and you imagine your visual mind turns on a huge part of your brain. It's very, very tied to your memories. So this becomes extremely interesting because these massive parts of your back of your mind connect to your front of your mind, make things more vivid, make things more engaging. You know, and so to go back to that idea of the brain, uh, the the dream, like you look at what the dream does when you're sleeping. The technical aspects to it are fascinating. Your brain, in order to create the dream experience, turns off certain parts and amps up other parts. It amps up the visual associative cortex. It amps up that part of images. It amps up that that rich memory-driven experience. It turns off the prefrontal cortex. You, your rational thought dies, the, the speaking dies, that, 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 the, the, the sort of mind dies. And then the, obviously the, the deep emotional brain is absolutely charged. The memory brain, the, the emotional brain, the social brain, these are all very, very tied, are ri- richly charged. And so this is what's going on in the dream, you know, you're, you're switching out of rational mainstream media, academia, you know, intellectuals in the coffee shop talking to each other, and you're moving into the visual Hollywood-like, you know, drama, storing, uh, story told, and um, rich way of seeing things. And that's why it comes that way. Remember what I said earlier, during the day, you walk around with this conscious mind, and it feels like you have this sort of reality, but there's this other part that does actually seem to be nearly maybe underneath or separate or behind or something like that, or or everywhere, but like hidden outside the bubble or something like that. And it, it kind of, it whispers in, but you usually block it out because it's painful. It's too charged with emotions. And now we have a very, very clear picture showing you that there is a visual set of your mind that's turned on when you dream, that turns on, that's very connected to your emotion. That's what a dream is, an emotional vision. And it's charged. And we ignore this. It's a huge part of our brain. If you're seeing this picture, it's it's like the, the center of your head and the most of the back of your head. And, and we and we don't take it serious because we want to be the front of our head because that's what our conception of ourself is. And this is not something that's very, very well and um, not, not very, very grounded. Like our, our conception of ourself is not something that is as valuable, first of all, as we think, nor as eternal nor as persistent. If, if you want to think about the concept Jung says of the ego, there's good evidence against it being as useful as we treat it. You know, our conscious mind, and it's it's one thing to understand the jargon, but it's another thing to actually like be able to beat it. Our conscious mind gets trapped in its egotistical modes of thinking. But we look at the science of something people study a lot called flow. This is what we call creativity. And brainwaves are a part of it, as they're saying. But listen to this. Flow is also caused by Transient hypofrontality, lovely jargon word, the temporary deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is that part at the front, you know, it's that um, that first bit, the, the, the big chunk above your head, it gives you rational thought, gives you personality, gives you a lot of brilliant things. It's very important, but it also creates our conception of ourself. The prefrontal cortex is part of our brain that houses most of our higher cognitive functions. Why does our sense of self disappear in flow? Because self is generated by large portions of the prefrontal cortex and with large swaths of this area no longer open for business, that sense vanishes. That sense vanishes completely. Oh my God, what? <laughs> so when we're in these high level athletic moments or high level of flow with music, high level of creativity, 
our prefrontal cortex goes into a trance and turns off in a sense it, it dulls and it allows these other parts of our brain to take over what the hell is happening what so the best the, the parts of us when we're at like peak performance the best of our human existence is actually non-egotistical it is anti-ego and this is not what they're always talking about that it's turning off the conscious mind and we are making this mistake of saying the conscious mind and its demand for reason is supreme over all these other parts of the mind. But now it's starting to subvert itself because the deep science is starting to show that this part of our mind isn't even present when we're in the absolute excellence of creativity. This meme is absolutely true. <laughs> and, and that's something you, you can't just dismiss. That's something you can't just dismiss because it's the same idea with something like a dream. And then it explains a lot of why we are attracted to people who just throw the scientific consensus to the wind and say, I'm going to write a red book. Because it, it's like, all right, well, it just flows out of me. The muse hits me. I just get the visions. I, I'm presenting a dream and it tends to have immense power. And of course, like a, a high performer who's in flow, Conor McGregor describes often when he's fighting, it feels like an outer body experience. Your self turns off and you're almost like watching yourself from above. So do you remember what I said about the dream? You have that conscious mind that turns off and you go to sleep. And then you'll realize there's this very silent, strange witness that's almost like at the back. And then the dreaming mind comes. So why does he feel like he's watching himself from above? Is that because he starts to identify with his true self? I don't know, man. I'm just a boil. I'm not here to say anything too crazy. But you can think about these things. And so this, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. A non-trivial thing that you cannot dismiss. This has huge consequences for creativity. For example, during the flow, during flow, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain charged with self-monitoring and impulse control goes quiet. The DLPFC is our inner critic, the voice of doubt and disparagement. As a result, with this area deactivated, we're far less critical and far more courageous, both augmenting our ability to imagine new possibilities and share those possibilities with the world. So the, the, the inner critic that talks and thinks and is rational and knows everything and is causing you anxiety and putting you down all the time, when you hit flow, when you hit the highest version of performance, the ultimate creative state, it turns off and you actually perform better. Signaling that this is, first of all, not too intelligent. It just talks a lot. And it gets in the way of you being your best self. I don't know, man. I don't know. And so Jung writes a book about this that predicts the future, in theory. Although, it's like, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to say anything that ruins my career. And, yeah, and people say he's a bit irrational. Who knows? Well, look, here's good hard science giving him kudos. So let's see, see what we're talking about here a bit more. And so this idea of the bigger brain, the united brain, is, is something that we need to focus on. Here's an example of people taking LSD. Same thing. The brain lights up. You know, this is a, this is like steroids to going to the gym. Perhaps there's ways that we can access this full brain experience without needing drugs. So that's a lot of what I'm going to talk about in this channel going forward, because I believe it exists. But at the same time, if you want to experience this stuff, and I've, I've done LSD, I've tried it. You, you can just take the psychedelics and, and things will happen. It will switch your chemistry in a way that makes you have these experience. It's steroids. It's not in any way... Um, a long-term solution or even that advisable like you can do it a, a, a gentler way by just simply allowing allowing these little portals when these portals appear when that strong emotion appears take it when that dream appears go with it see what happens and when these visions appear follow them 
you know that that can that can work just as good but if you were stuck in the materialistic mind you need to bully it out of the way this can work and i'll talk about my story with that stuff later but um but let's 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 talk about this a little bit more let's let's talk about um how i understand the front brain and the back brain and then i'm going to talk about the left brain the right brain because that's another way you can look at this angle so i often talk about jargon steph why do you hate jargon so much it's like i'm sorry now you see what i'm saying here is that this front brain is not your friend this is the thing that's hurting you you know now this is very important to understand is that this front brain is not your friend it's also not your enemy it's just a tool it's like the computer it's like the phone phone is not the source of my personality or reputation or health or, or or what i treat it like oh the most important thing in the world the internet you know the machine is not me the machine is something that's that serves me that gets populated by my spirit i make the internet worthwhile because i inject my human spirit into it the machine is no power there's no purpose now the thing is what happens with our conscious mind the front mind the de- the, the the dorsal front prefrontal cortex whatever you call it is we get caught up with identifying as it the ego as Jung described and you're starting to see the neuroscience behind this and it has this habit of creating the jargonite world it it needs to turn everything into categories that it can understand it needs to have control it wants to make sense of the world and so it builds this bubble or this palace of jargon around itself and it makes itself the little king i'm in control i know everything i am this and this and this and this and this and that might be i'm a piece of shit i hate myself i hate everything about myself but at least i'm in control you will actually stay in a comfort zone where you're anxious and depressed as long as it makes you feel you're in control (laughs) it's so strange but it's true and as we said the the best part of you the part where you're using your whole brain the flow part of you is turns this off signaling that this is great but not exactly useful not exactly not exactly supreme it needs to be tamed so think about the purpose of this the purpose of you using this ego is so that you can interact with the world in a very simple way you don't need to have a buddhist experience of total flow all the time because you like you know life is just not like that you need to kind of have a a sort of simple view so you can just walk around and and have a little bit of fun and and you know do things simply it's like a desktop you lie about this the state of the computer so that you can use the computer and so what happens with um jargon is that it like or the the palace of jargon the concept mind the, the prefrontal mind the higher cognitive mind is good it's it's got a lot of good stuff but it needs to be subservient to this this deeper experience this deeper mind these these deeper parts of you and in order for you to trigger that you need to you you need to allow this thing to be to, to be sort of to, to be humbled for it to bow and, and say i will serve you you need to allow this conscious mind every now and again to allow its palace that it spent so much time building get dissolved into nothing so that your deep mind can build it up again. Actually, the function of dreams, if you look at this very, very quickly, is um, you make up all these categories about people and then the dreams dissolve these categories and put them back together. So, for example, you have a category which is your mother and that's tied to 50, 100,000 billion memories. And they're all stringed together. And each of those memories has a little tinge of emotion. Positive, 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 bad, weird, positive, positive, bad, weird, unsure, it does she like me, am I safe? These type of things. Each emotion. And then they all compress together and form this like really vibrant charge. And so when you see her, there's this tinge of that charge underneath it. And that actually quite substantially informs your relationship with her. And it basically boils down to, can I trust her? 
or do or can I not trust her? And so when you see her, you're you're sort of having this experience and that might affect your mood and you might be nicer to her, less nice to her. Maybe you can have a very, very civil conversation, be like, how are you doing, mom? That's great, blah, 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 blah. It's on the surface, the words that the conscious mind is having this, but underneath it, there's still this tension or it might be very, very positive. There's this, this great deep love, you know? And as you have new experiences with her, as you break down into new territories and all this and, and go deeper with her or, or, or ignore her or something like that, these, these, um, you'll add more uh, memories to this chain that has been compressed into the category. And so the charge will change. And this is what dreams do. They open up the category they maybe explore them they cross reference it with other ones and then put it back together when you wake up it takes so your you your conscious mind builds this palace of bricks and then your dream mind pulls it apart updates it sees is, is it correct and then puts it back together so that you can use it again during the day this is this is how your mind works this is why you dream i'd imagine now this is a very boyo theory but this is just what i'm seeing from reading the evidence and so um jung would say for example that in individuation happens naturally but you can encourage it along and maybe this is what you need to understand is that the, your dreaming mind will update this jargon palace naturally it'll be very very painful but maybe you could do it consciously maybe you could let the dream mind come forward and let it destroy this let it destroy your your palace of order man and then you would then you would update faster and maybe this is what happened with someone like Jung. Maybe he put it off. Because if you read the start of the Red Book, it's, it's actually written in a very conscious, rational, scientific way because that's what his habit was. And he is sort of suggesting a little bit that he might have got a bit stiff and academic and ignored this part of himself a little bit. And and this is and you, you get this in all of his other books. He has that technical writing style. And it's, it's not very good. It's not very readable. Like a lot of people who read Jung can't, can't understand him. They can only just grapple with the words, but they can't see what he's seeing because they don't know how to use their heads this way. And so they, all they can do is interact with Jung at an intellectual level. But if you see this, maybe maybe that was something going wrong with him. He's a stiff academic who cares about his reputation. And this was his experience of having that melted. And you have this experience too. And so this is this is one possible reason you've got this you know mechanical mind that's trying to use it and you think this is you but it's actually just a servant and you need to humble it. And when you crosswire the brain a different way you get the exact same thing. You it turns out that the left brain and if you look at Ian McGilchrist, right? He talks about the left brain and the right brain. The, the right brain is like the observing mind and the left brain is like the the using mind, the doing mind, the mechanical mind. So the left brain the left and the right sides of the prefrontal cortex have different biases, with the left side orientated more towards approach, positive goals and emotions, and the right side specialized more in avoidance and negative emotions. It's also worth noting that the left side of the prefrontal cortex hosts more dopamine receptors activity associated with motivation and reward, while the right is greater no refinerine activity associated with anxiety. In studies of the neural correlations of depression, it has been found that the left prefrontal cortex activity is underactive relative to right prefrontal cortex activity. So what's going on here? The left brain is making sense of the world. It's, it's, it's um, sorry, it's not making sense. It's making use of the world. It's using the dopamine receptors to make you motivated to go do stuff. And it has this habit of lying about the world. I've talked about this before. I have this wonderful cup in front of me. And I look at this cup and it says, oh, 
I can, I can, my right brain perceives the cup as it is and it sees that it's part of a chain of infinite associations. And this glass goes all the way back on some supply chain that goes back to some guy who's just working to feed his family, who's had this rich experience and he has this whole family story. And I can see all this and I can see the glass goes back to the factory and it's all connected to the minerals of the earth that were stepped on by dinosaurs. And then when the earth exploded, sorry, when the sun exploded and created all this stuff. And that's how rich this glass has history that's billions of years deep. This is a, a, a fragment of the universe I'm holding in my hand that came out of the Big Bang. Now, what's interesting is it's also just a fucking glass. And my left brain says, shut up, you pretentious, hippie right brain, and just drink. Just use the glass. Like, you just pick up the glass and, and, you know, it's almost like a button to the left brain. It's like, just go... That's all you got to do. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop paying attention to it like this. And think about it this way: in like uh, back in the ancient days, you you would have been walking around and you would have been picking berries, and your left brain is like pick berries, pick berries, pick berries, and your right brain is quietly not paying attention to what your left brain is doing. It's quietly just observing and saying, "Okay, everything's okay. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to stay out of the way. I don't need to be bothering the left brain. It's eating. It's doing well." And so you, the eye, is caught up eating the the berries and all this, and then. The, the right brain detects a lion in the corner and the lion, the lion is, it suddenly grabs the left brain and shoots it with negative emotion, the anxiety. It says, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And so it's been watching, it's been watching, even it's like the eye behind on the back of your head and it gets all, you know, that feeling of I am being watched. It has that power. And then the left brain shuts up, it stops doing its thing, it humbles itself, it looks over and sees the lion and runs away and it makes you run away. The dopamine makes you run away, motivation and reward. And so it's that type of thing that the, the right brain is perceiving all this stuff. It's deciding what's important. And then the left brain is using this and all this. And they kind of are at war a little bit. And to understand this is, is to understand the, the, the vision in our mind. It's the same problem of ego versus deep self. There is this strange pattern that shows up everywhere when we look into neuroscience. There's a part of us. It literally constantly starts to show up. There's a part of us that is sort of conscious in the moment, caught up in the moment, that, that, that obsesses about um, this, this arrogant conception that it's in control and thinks it's not what's going on. And then there's this other part of us that's more visual, more observant, more deep, more profound, more quiet, more humble and, and has an ability to step out of the picture. And its job is actually superior. Its job is the leader. It's the introverted leader, but we've got the extroverted idiot that is the doer, it's like the salesman. And he needs to be humbled to this. And so an explosion like the Red Book coming in, uh, you know, or a visionary experience coming in, destroying your reality is very, very similar to, to this experience. Probably is this experience where your left brain or your front brain or your ego, whatever concept you want to use, these are all wrapped up in the same vague um, blob, if you will. These, these all together, they make up the machine mind, the mechanical mind, and it gets arrogant thinking that it's the real thing that exists. It thinks that it's alive. It thinks that it's the king of the castle and it needs to constantly be shoved back into its place. And the way that the right brain does this is by literally just opening all the doors to its house and flooding it full of essentially psychedelic visions and or, or really intense emotions or reality itself. When it confronts problems and realizes that it was full of shit, that's when you have the breakdown, the crisis. So here's a comfy quote by Schopenhauer, again, referencing the idea of genius, high flow, the extreme high performance parts of your mind that, that points out the, inf the, the fallibility of the ego. Talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. 
because being able to perceive reality is far superior to being able to use a fake version of reality, a useless version of reality. The left brain could be the best archer in the room, but the right brain would be the one who can see the, the boar no one else can see, that type of thing. And so these relate, this jargon creating mind, it, it's very, very much related in some sense. It's a very, very interesting um, way. We've got this like crosshair. The brain is divided between front and back. It's also, also divided between left and right. And they both have these divisions of behaviours. And it's not like logic and artistic. It's way more complicated. And so if you want to think just about what Jung was confronting in his paradigm that was so profound and difficult was he was coming up against the scientific inertia of the Enlightenment. And this is why Jung had to hide his red book. Maybe if he was back in Christian days, he would have actually been able to pre present this and people would have thought, oh, he got a gift from God because that's the way they understood the dreaming world. But now that we had the Enlightenment, we've shifted our conceptions. So basically, Descartes, or Descartes, comes up with this thesis of, I think, therefore I am, because he's trying to figure out this problem of, like, what the hell am I? What the hell is a human? Now, as I said before, I think, therefore I am, literally falls into the frame of this thing, the loud thinking left brain, which talks, or the loud thinking front brain, which talks, whatever you want. It's, it's almost like a, a, a unison, a, a strange uh, axis of evil of these two things. This left brain that talks is um, the one that thinks, but the right brain is silent and humble and observes. And so Descartes, of course, had this experience when he was younger where an angel came to him in a dream and said, you will conquer nature through the use of number and measure. Surprised he didn't really think about that too much when he went on to do what he did. But any anyway, he, he comes up with the idea of the thinking mind is the source of reality. And that, of course, is a mistake on first principle. And if I had any crusade, this would be my crusade is that this Enlightenment principle, and it's not necessarily Descartes who got it wrong, but it is this problem where the Enlightenment as a collective, as a hereditary consensus, couldn't start, saw this first principle and said, oh my God, oh, oh, that, that's the truth. I, my thinking mind is reality. My rational thinking mind is reality. And this is what psychoanalysis subverted. And this is what's, what we're actually struggling to make people realize, is that no, that's not correct. And the neuroscience is now starting to back it up. As I said, you've got the left brain, the right brain, and the front brain, the back brain, whatever you want to call it. The, the, these patterns are starting to point to a very similar phenomenology. That front mind is just a talkative, delusional idiot, a salesman that you use. It's not in any way the, the CEO. The CEO is a silent dude who hangs around in the back and you never really see. And the consequences of this, this Cartesian mind, the Cartesian dualism that they get, is that you come up with this thesis that everything except my thinking mind is an automaton machine which must serve me. So you obviously hear about like a lot of the, the hippies and the lefties and all this, and they're like, oh, the environment, they actually have a good point because this automaton machine mind looks out into the animals and says, oh, they're just machines that uh, my reason, because it's my reason is so superior, can use. But your reason is not superior. The left brain thesis, the right brain thesis, listen to McGilchrist, proves that the left brain is delusional. It lies about the nature of the cup and says, it's just a cup, drink. It turns things into something that's functional. But the right brain is the thing that sees the cup for what it is and decides how meaningful it is. The right brain would be the one to be like, hold your cup well and drink with gratitude because it's a beautiful thing that you have there. Whereas the left brain would be like, how about we make a load of plastic cups because all it is is something to drink out of. You know, qualitative doesn't matter. And of course, the, the thing that built, you know, Rome, the thing that built the beautiful um, ar architecture, the thing that bu built high culture is 
of course that attitude of reverence and gratitude not this idea of functionality of left-brained autism and so what this Descartian mind does is that this radical um, radical rational mind turns on everything else it turns on the back of your mind and says oh it's just you know dreams are just mechanical things that happen because my, my brain's bored when it sleeps my heart my body is just a machine it's it's just an automatonic machine there's nothing in it i give it power plants machines <laughs> animals machines all to be manipulated oh i can just reconstruct my body oh i can just reconstruct the back of my head you know and think about this in context of a lot of the stuff that elon's worried about you know the idea that there's this rational spark in us and they, they they have some notion that they can take they can abstract that out and upload it into like the super machine and the body is irrelevant it's not the point of focus very very interesting thesis what if the thesis is wrong what if they aren't able to criticize their own first principle and they're going to lead us into i don't know an artificial hellhole who knows because what happens is when you go with this first principle everything except my thinking mind is an automaton machine which must serve it it leads to the Gnostic feeling of a fake reality. Because it is a fake reality. I said, the left brain creates this notion of, oh, like, all right, you've got the cup. <laughs> and the palace and the bubble and the ego and the conscious mind. And that's fake. It's a lie. It, it takes the cup and it can only see the cup as a functional tool. It doesn't see any value in the cup. And so it starts to see that there's no, like, the left brain is saying, all this is is a thing for me to drink out of. It has no inherent value because, you know, it won't listen to the part of its mind that can see that. And so it starts to doubt the cup is even, has any significance at all. And it applies that to everything in reality and suddenly it's stuck in its head, believing that there's no reality out there. Descartes, the Enlightenment, derp science, neurotics stuck in their head types. This is a psychological problem and it comes from a psychological first principle. And it's very, very simple to change that, but we're going to talk about that later. Now, everybody handsome inverts this whole thing and this is incredible when i started to look at it descartes has it exactly incorrect he's he's it 180 incorrect because that thing on front the front mind the left brain is brilliant but it's a machine it's actually the machine everything else is what is alive the divine spark is not in the left brain's rational ability to turn things into fun. it's actually in everything else and when you can turn off this left brain as a Buddhist would do, so the, the, the Buddhist would be like, Steph, silence your thinking mind. Look around you. My name is Alan Watts, and you think that you are you, but you are actually not you. You are you, something in between. You know, that type of spiel. And what you do is you, you let the thinking mind go quiet, as they always tell you to do, and you look around and you'll see and you perceive reality. The right brain, the observing brain that I'm talking about here, turns on and looks around and sees that everything is, there's something out, there's there's a world out there. And it's all interconnected and you have all the basic bitch yoga stuff and turns out that, I'm sorry to say lads, your deep mind is a yoga basic bitch. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And you look out there, I'm, I'm serious about this. You invert the first principle and you see something absolutely amazing. Descartes looks out and sees that everything is dead and a machine, a mechanical clock ticking its days out and the only thing that gives it any purpose or meaning is this rational mind in its head and everybody handsome looks out and sees when i cut my hand my rational mind doesn't fix it my body fixes itself actually the less i pay attention to it the better there's a scene from fight club where he says marla is like the cut inside your mouth that would heal if you could just stop thung tonguing it 
It's the same thing. You look out into the garden or the grass. You plant a little tree. You don't have to go out and do anything. It grows. It's like the world is alive, moving without you. You think about your heart. Your heart supplies more energy to your brain than your brain does itself. Your heart just beats for you constantly. What a gift. Your dreams. You don't make it. You don't sit there and be like, okay, um, I'm going to sleep now, brain. Gives us some dreams. They just happen. They come to you. And they're not stupid. They have some strange predictive power, it seems. Or in- at least insight, if you don't want to believe the Red Book. They at least have insight. Animals, just the same. I see this so much. People look out at animals and be like, oh, they're just dead machines. It's literally like left brain. It's a, literally a psychological mistake, as I've demonstrated several times. It's, it's literal parts of your brain that have proven, have neuroscientific proof that they're not the highest part of yourself. They're not useful for high performance and they're also not accurate. They're, not, they're, they're um, adaptive to making the world useful, not seeing the world as it is. And they render animals as dead machines instead of seeing them as inherently possessed with life. Because that's what your right brain can see. You can see life, you can see beauty, you can see richness, you can see depth. Same with plants, same with the world. The world turns into this pantheistic, living, animated world, this vibrant, living world. It's almost as if God put it there and you think about, oh, how do I get food and all that stuff? Like, if you get a couple of animals and some grass and maybe somewhere to plant some potatoes, you'd probably be all right, man, because the sun would just come up and it would just make everything grow. And yeah, you'd probably do, you'd probably do all right. You'd probably do all right because the world just works without you. You don't actually need to do that much. You kind of need to adapt to the world. And realize that your job is to get that machine mind of yours and, you know, weed the garden. And, you know, make a nice fence so the animals don't run off. You don't need to do much more. You don't need to go out there and go in there and stick your hand into the cow and beat its heart. Its heart's going to go without you. You know, you, you just need to adapt to the reality out there, not the other way around. Now, that's absolutely fascinating because then that inverts the thesis. And then what you have is everything is alive and my rational mind is a machine that must serve it. And then your rational mind turns into a mechanical dead machine that gets populated by the spirit in the world, the energy in the world. And of course, Jung couldn't present this to people because everybody's on this paradigm. That's his zeitgeist. And he's coming at this idea that like, oh, dreams are like, you know, the world's alive and my heart's alive and dreams are alive and no one's going to listen to him. And if you look out there, and see that vibrant world, you're going to see what Jung and Freud saw as, I guess you could say, the libido or the anima or the animating force or whatever, this, this, this original moving force. Nietzsche's thesis of the will to power. Life is just the will to power and nothing beside. Remember, Nietzsche loved Spinoza, who was a pantheist. The Roman concept of the soul is the animus, something underneath that comes up, not something up here that moves down. The Christian Holy Spirit, same thing. You get possessed by a great feeling. And if you think about it, like everything grows and it grows out there. If you just look out at the world, like everything is moving and growing. And I don't know, like who's driving on that? It seems to be some type of intelligence, some type of personality, some type of, dare I say, divine. But I guess a good question is, why are you telling me all this stuff, Steph? I'm just trying to read a book. I'm just trying to read the Red Book by Carl Jung. I don't I don't care about Descartes. Like, why do you why do you always go off in these tangents? What why are you bringing this stuff up? 
I'm trying to paint the context that me, a lover of context, I'm trying to give you a, a good big picture perspective on why this stuff would have been so emotionally charged for Carol. Because there's a problem with words, with stories like this, is that we find it very hard to populate the jargon, the words that you see on the page with the resonant meaning that would have for, for you. So what you'll get when you first read this book is that it's actually quite dense. It's quite difficult to read. Here's um here's a snapshot of some of it. For example, the spirit of this time onto we to recognize the greatness and extent of the supreme meaning, but not its littleness. Now, in fairness, that actually just doesn't make any sense on its own unless you unpack what spirit of this time is and supreme meaning is. And why this is such a big deal, like why this comes across as relevant to someone going through a schizophrenic break is kind of hard to tell. You know the way when someone's going crazy, you can think of it like when they're drunk but it would be the same when they're insane the stuff they're saying it might not make any sense but it or it might be kind of obscure but it's really meaningful to them and this is the stuff you really need to get a grip on is that Jung was coming up against this massive tidal problem the paradigm he was in was the Cartesian mind and him and Freud were going against this and he was going to take the further step and start to 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 to, to show some of the things that invalidated that first principle, that there so, does seem to be beneath, in these dreams, there does seem to be an intelligence of sorts. It's not just like the Freudian libido that wants sex. It's not like just these dead, dull impulses. There seems to be something ordering, something supremely powerful in it. And the Red Book is his testament to what it, what it showed him. And so he had spent his whole life building up with his left brain, building up this persona. I am, you know, I'm, I'm a married man. I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm, you know, on the cutting edge of psychoanalysis. And he's putting together, literally constructing himself so that he can present it to the world. This is such an interesting thing. When you want to start understanding these ideas, you have this ego, which is very close to the behavior the thinking mind, the left brain does. And then it has this habit of creating this persona self-image that you want to present to people to you a very lucid example of how this goes down and um, I was working with a dude who had anxiety and I was trying to show him this stuff I was trying to show him this and say look you have you know the, this ego this left brain this front brain and if you can step outside of it and just watch what it do, does you can catch it out you can become the right brain a little bit more and so he was saying that he um drove up to a set of traffic lights in his car and, and stopped and then another car drove up beside him and he was thinking, oh my God, they're, they're probably looking at me now. And he got anxious. So he started to like, you know, look like a cool boy out, like relax. Um, I don't know, the shades mode, shades mode. And you put your hand up on the, the steering wheel and you're like, I'm a cool dude. He started to change his behavior to suit what he thought they would think is cool. And of course, I'm working it with him and getting him to be a lot more self-aware of what he's doing with this stuff. And then he suddenly realizes what he's doing and he stops himself and he's thinking, Oh my God, what am I doing? So he looks across and the person in the car isn't even looking at him. They're like fixing the radio or something as far as I remember. And so what you see there is just the most lucid, hilarious example. He literally created a fake reality based off some assumptions that his thinking mind made that he, that people were judging him. So he, over there, he, he imagined like a demon in the car beside him, looking at him, judging him, being like, be cool, be cool. And his response to that was to construct a persona, to, to not be himself, not just sit there relaxed and be like whatever little weirdo we all are, like uh, deep down, and just be who you are, you know, just just be the quirky, kind of like stare back at the person or something. Like that. What are you looking at, man? <laughs> Instead, he tried to, um, tried to, you know, become the cool dude, shape up, change, build a persona. And this, he was doing this in response to anxiety. 
You know, it's like when uh, you, you know, you're in the village in the tribe and some guy comes in and he's got like a, a spear and he's going to kill everybody who doesn't look like they're obedient. And so you you shape up, you act good, you act like the good, obedient person. You're like, oh, I follow your tribe. Yes, I agree with your tribe and all this. You don't be yourself. You don't tell them your opinion in that moment. No, you turn around, you be like, exactly. Whatever you want, sir, I'm down. 100%. That type of thing. And so... um you catch this stuff out and you see that this is what can happen and you can live in this mode of being where you're imagining all these people who are completely caught up in their own realities and probably aren't even paying that much attention to you it's not it the, the tragedy is not that people are judging you it's that they actually just simply don't care about you no one cares about you like that's that's a really that's a way worse pill and um and the thing is is that you're torturing yourself because of that you're in pain you're you're worried and anxious because you think people care what you think and so you're building up this persona to impress people. I think the Fight Club quote is, uh, you work a job you hate to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. And this is what you have to let crumble. And it's actually really painful because when you let that crumble, you have to face what you are and maybe how pathetic you feel you are and all these things. You have to face all these insecurities. But you can see the parts of your mind that does this. And this is what Jung was going through. So all of these ideas that he's presenting to you in the Red Book at the start, like I'm, I'm going to warn you, it's very jargon heavy. What tends to happen with people, like if I work with an artist or something like that and he's got like writer's block, it's actually very, very similar in neuro, neuropsychologically, right? You have this anxious perception someone a creating front mind that wants to create the perfect script or perfect story before he even starts and you have to kind of get him down to sit down and just be like realistic and just get it out there and get draft one done even if it's shit and get it finished and all this and it's that same thing you will have this um anxiety attached to this and what what will happen is if you want to get them to get to the end, you have to get them to just sort of like blurt out a load of junk. It's like turning on a tap. The water has to come out dirty and then it comes out clean. And so when Jung's writing the Red Book, it starts off with him intellectually. His intellect is still very powerful. His thinking mind, his left brain, his his propensity. He talks about thinking versus intuition. This, the thinking is very strong. And so he, when you read the start of this, it's, it's very jargon heavy. It's very, very um, difficult and obscure to read. And then later on, it starts to get vivid, rich and visual. He becomes a lot more narrative, as you can see his deeper mind coming out. So it's a brilliant book for this reason, because it shows you uh, an immensely intelligent person go through this process of getting out of their own way and letting the deep mind talk. And of course, the big part of that was him trying to keep this scientific front, this persona, where he is, of course, you know, a part of the paradigm. He's not some weirdo who's going to get into all this stuff, even though he wants to. And this is him slowly allowing himself to surrender to it. This is, of course, why he held back on releasing this book, because he didn't want it to destroy his credibility, but he knew this was important. And so at the start, you'll have these type of sentences. The spirits, the spirit of the depths, however, conquered this arrogance, and I had to swallow the small as a means of healing the immortal and unheroic. It was even ridiculous and revolting, but the pliers of the spirit of the depths held me, and I had to drink the bitterest of all draught. I resisted recognizing that the everyday belongs to the image of the Godhead. I fled this thought. I hid myself behind the highest and coldest stars. But the spirit of the depths caught up with me and forced the bitter drink between my lips. You know, so let's let's pull Jung to Jargonite. Let's pull apart this stuff like the supreme meaning. What the hell is that all about? 
So think about it this way. As I'm trying to describe, the scientific paradigm was at that point where everybody thought that we were just about to, the Europeans were just about to figure it and get the theory of everything and fix the world, you know. And all these movements rose up around about this time. Marx rose up and said, right, the final revolution is going to happen and then we'll have the utopia. And Freud's here, like, if we get psychology nailed, boom, theory of everything, we've got everything figured out. Physics was at the point where it was just understanding the ether and about to get into that point where it, it said, right, we've got physics nailed. And the kingdom of God is around the corner. And this is this immense arrogance this immense conflation exactly what this um, left brain this this jargon constructing notion would be it's it's no longer um it's it's no longer got the sincerity of exploration it's now at the point where it's putting together its final plan instead of engaging with the moment it's setting itself up for a fall it's lucifer creating the pandemonium around it and so um this is this type of thing, and obviously this is the spirit of the times, the zeitgeist, and I keep talking about, and we still have this problem now. Think about what's going on now. Once we create AI, we'll have this perfect utopia, and there'll be no problems whatsoever, and it's going to be so brilliant, and it's going to be perfect, and we're all going to be gods together. <laughs> and of course, what happened with Jung is everybody was going through a very similar thinking pattern, the same malaise, the same pathology, and then when the, the, the big movement of history, so there they're all waiting for this massive movement of history when everything would change. And when the big movement of history came, it was the most unhuman, horrendous, humiliating experience of all. A ritual of humiliation that turned men basically into animals again in meat factories. You know, that's that's all it turned them into. And we're in the same position. Artificial intelligence will figure out the mind and connect it to the machines. And it's going to make us all gods. And it's very likely to, like, well, it's... It's possible. I wonder, is it coming around the corner where what's going to happen is we will get humiliated just like we were last time. And it will be this this thing where we're just shoved rootlessly back into the ground and turned into like, you know, lobotomized, um, lobotomized uh, mitochondria stuck inside the body of this super machine that's now growing out of us. And these are serious things you have to think about because this would be the shadow of the age, the shadow of the movement, the shadow of our time. And our zeitgeist is something you can't talk to about this. But of course, as we're saying, when you allow this 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 zeitgeist creating mind, the the the, the Cartesian mind to get out of the way, and you let this this the the everybody handsome mindset to open up and allow you to see the world, you start to perceive out there that there obviously is intelligence in something like a dream, something outside necessarily your 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 ego is the dreaming mind, and it seems smart. You know, it, it dreams churn up stuff that's not incoherent. Actually, it's difficult to understand, but when you do it properly, and I've done it with people, it does it does actually offer insight. And it does have something to it. And it seems like it has a smartness to it. The same way as um, when you are a musician. And I've had this experience many times when I make a song and I sort of just get out of my own way. And, and I, it's almost like there's a feeling in me. And I grab the feeling. And I just let the feeling talk. And it tends to create this really beautiful, original, well-ordered song. And that's me getting out of my way and letting something in me talk. And it's... Well, it's profound. What does that mean? That, that really is profound. What does that mean? And you could call this the spirit of the depths. This is something coming from outside this bubble, the ego of the times. And it has this ability to understand and move and explain to you. And so Jung was coming in contact with this. He's writing it down in this red book. He's afraid of showing everybody around him, but he's taking it serious. And you can see him conceptually wrestling with these emotions. So this is how charged all this stuff is. This would be like Elon Musk, like shaking his hands after having like 20 nightmares for two weeks straight, thinking, 
thing about artificial intelligence coming on being like everybody's so arrogant and not down to earth and they don't know what's happening and I can see there's something in me saying be careful warn them warn them warn them this would be a very similar experience so you can understand why he's trembling so much why he's, he's struggling so much and of course the the problem is that he's trying to come in contact with the the mystery of Christ the red book really explores this a lot in a beautiful and powerful way to be a European person, and believe me, I've I've done my tirades against Christianity and into paganism and all that. But Jung puts forward a very important thesis, which is: look, as much as you might like be interested in science or paganism or whatever, you you don't get to walk around this boyo here. This boyo is a juicy boyo. He is the deepest part of your mind, most certainly. Maybe there's there's more to it, but there's he's right there in the middle of the rock. He's in your words and everything. He is the he is the the godhead within you the image of the godhead within you and no european gets to take a step forward in their evolution maybe even as a people until we confront the mystery of christ you know this is a big deal this dude is a big deal and what is christ the humiliated savior he is the 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 human who can get humiliated and still remain divine and of course this is the opposite of arrogance humiliated means humility it's related and of course, what was all this stuff about? About the arrogance getting humiliated by the technological monster that it creates. And we're perhaps prepping ourselves for something similar. And of course, this big J, he's coming to remind us of what we really are. And maybe suggesting that if you want your humanity, you need to match that with humility these two things should be related and where like losing your humanity is not something trivial it's something difficult and scary and uh, world war one proved that and god knows what's around the corner and so you can see what he's trying to wrestle with here he's trying to wrestle with the notion how, how humility would have fixed a lot of these problems so he hopes maybe we don't have a chance maybe it's like all right cool everybody get into jesus but nobody will because the collective is moving on so he's he has to drink the bitterest of all draughts that's a, a reference to christ in the garden before he has to suffer the, the truth is is that despite the fact that we can see this stuff despite the fact that we can say maybe we should uh, put the brakes on artificial intelligence as elon says it's probably not going to happen i hate to be defeatist but but the the the, the momentum's going to keep going and the suffering is what will teach us people learn through pain a lot more true wisdom reason does not teach pain teaches harsh contact with reality teaches and that's a scary problem it's a very very scary problem now, what becomes incredibly interesting about this is how you start to see the patterns that Jung discovers in your own life. This notion of this strange, dreaming mind that's full of vibrancy appearing and taking over and giving you stuff that's powerful and your egotistical, zeitgeist, adapted front mind that wants to look cool in front of all the other peers of you of your time. This is actually the, the most dead part of you. Now, what do I mean by that? I look back into my childhood, me, Steph, the boyo. I look back into my childhood and I see the parts that stick out to me, that stick out to me, that I remember. They're almost always vibrant memories. I remember when my imagination was triggered and I was playing like I was a soldier in war. I remember running through fields and pretending I was uh, getting chased by raptors like I saw in Jurassic Park. I remember being too creative at Halloween in school and drawing like a really crazy picture and the teacher being all happy with me. I remember the first time they presented me color theory in school and they showed me how blue and yellow mixed together to create boyo and I was um, incredibly like these, these things stuck with me now what did not stick with me was running around and like what I don't remember is what my head was saying 
all throughout those those days, my head was being like blah 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 blah. Do this, do this. My left brain was chattering away. My ego was chattering away. I don't remember any of that. I don't have a single memory about those words at all. That that has actually all just disappeared and died. And that's really fucking scary because the part of me that I'm spending my most time listening to is that thinking mind. I'm walking around and it makes me anxious about stuff and it makes me feel down and tells me I'm not good enough and it says, oh, make that persona and all this stuff. And I don't, I don't remember any of its words or any of its stuff at all. And most of the stuff I do for it, I don't really remember. I might remember, if it, remember it if it's so stupid that I find it hilarious and I catch myself doing it. But that's usually when the observer mind, the right brain, notices that. And it's almost like... The part of me that is alive and vibrant and, and remembering things is this other brain that I'm underappreciating. And it is the one that can decide what is meaningful for me and that therefore what I remember. It's the part that literally is my life. If you think of your life as the terms of the memorable parts of your life. And, and this other part is, is, is a weird machine that's not useful. And of course, what happens as you mature from a variety of reasons, simply just maturing is one of them. And um, also the way school is organized is pretty not, not that great. Like we could have maybe a chat about that at some point. But it what it does is it encourages this talking brain, this left brain, this concept jargon brain. And you get caught up with that and you do its bidding and you become a stale person. You become a NPC, if you will. But it's not really even that. That that doesn't describe it the best. You you just you everything starts to turn grey and you lose touch with a lot of that stuff. When I was a kid I was extremely naturally creative. As I said, I could run around and pretend I was in a war and whatnot. That deep mind was just kicking away and my left brain, I guess, my ego wasn't strong enough to get in the way. And um and then that, that dies off over time as you get socialized. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, a necessary thing. But then you, you become lost and you have to rediscover it. Now, what do I mean by lost? Is because you're looking for a personality. You're looking to become someone. You know the way teenagers are walking around and they like wear all the baggy pants or they dress up like the rapper or something like that that they see on TV. And they're not really being themselves. They're being like a parody of someone else that they think is cool. It's very similar to what I was talking about with this scenario. We get caught up doing this. We get caught up trying to create a personality create a person and construct this thing and it's usually as i said in that example of the carboy it's usually charged with an immense amount of anxiety now what it means to become original become yourself is often about allowing that to die and getting back in touch with the part of you that was carrying you as a child also the part of you that is most alive the part of you that really understands decides what it what it is to live and this is the part of you that invaded Jung's consciousness Jung spent his whole life constructing that scientific ego and then this this deep part invaded that and completely subverted many of its first principles and scared him and he didn't know what was going on and this this happened to me I remember I wanted to be a musician and I was awful envious and I'd listen to other musicians and think oh they're so much better than me I want to be just like them and it's so funny some of the shit I used to do like people would play these 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 musicians and I'd listen to them like you know they play a good singer or something like that and I'd be like oh I don't listen to you know, that pop music or anything like that I'm better than that you know I'm, I'm above that and uh, and then I'd run off in the room and hide and, and try to like construct the perfect mu- musical style to show that I was civilized and cultured it's these hilarious parodies like you, you, i look so ridiculous to myself now but um but but in the moment i was caught up with this talking head that i was that i couldn't see myself doing it and i was in i, I was in a horrible place a horrible place all this negative 
terrible energy. It was like there was this thunderstorm in my face, which is my left brain, if you will. And it was shocking me into depression and anxiety and all these bad things. And um, I, I remember specifically the, 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 the idiocy of what I was trying to do in terms of constructing a personality. You know, like my, my it's so symptomatic of this left brain idea. What I would do is go through Wikipedia and look up all the music genres and then try to make a collage of all the cool ones to make my style. I would go and look up music theory and try to like sort organize music theory. This organizing mind is trying to figure stuff out. Now the thing with the organizing mind is that it it can't make anything itself. It's like a computer. It just gets inputs and outputs. It doesn't have anything else. It's just input output. It can't be an original source. This is just because it's a machine. It's the Descartesian machine. It's powerful, beautiful, intelligent, excellent. But it needs original input. Now, you could get this input from two places. You can get it from the outside world or you can get it from your deep soul. You can get it from your deep soul by going in and looking looking at what Jung cracked open with the Red Book. And it will bring up all these strong emotions and visions. You can open this door to this place with psychedelics, with going schizophrenic if you want, or with simply doing more more rational, intelligent, rational, doing more down-to-earth things like dream reading or something like that. You are actually able to crack this stuff open. And the thing is, is that when you start doing that, you will get inputs into that front brain and then the front brain will have original stuff to work with. So this is why Jung is so heavy on the jargon is because when this stuff starts to happen, he's obviously still in his front brain a fair bit. He's still fairly left brained and it suddenly is getting charged with all this new energy. And it's it's like speaking in tongues. It's dribbling. It's being like supreme meaning, spirit of the times. Oh my God, oh my God. And he's scribbling it down. And I know exactly what it feels like because when I started to find my personality again, I started to, you know, I started by reading. So this is, this is why happened i started reading nietzsche and young and all that and i'd write out the cool quotes and be like i want to one day write sentences that are that cool so i would collage all the cool quotes still i'm an organizer not not in any way um, original or intelligent or unique in any sense i'm still just an organizer and then what happens is i move from being an organizer into uh, this is when it started to click with me you know i started to feel this stuff and it started to come back to me i started to be unlost i started to find my personality i started to uh, write these c- quotes down and then write my write rewrite the quote in my own words and that was a huge step and then from there i remember it, it taking psychedelics and trying a lot of the stuff like dream reading and that came to the point where original ideas were pouring up out of me like dreams do every night and i was now channeling them towards my thinking brain and spending my time trying to get them to edit and so Suddenly, this is when things became a lot easier for me. Now I'm in a position where I have too many ideas and I'm not spending the time editing them with my front brain. That's a problem in and of itself, but that's a much better problem to be in than the one beforehand where you've got this like dead soul, basically. You're not connected with this deep mind. And it's not just the artistic thing. Like This is personality in general. If you're going out and hanging out with people and trying to be someone they all want you to, you think they want you to be, even though they don't care, you're never going to get anywhere. You're going to be putting a collage together of a fake person so you can get a approval a persona it's an egotistical persona to protect you from feeling like no one cares about you but if you actually access this deep part of you and start to shape your 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 communication and yourself and present yourself as this authentic original source if you figure out ways to get into this if you figure out how to get out of your way you'll actually present an original person to them and they will probably like you a lot more for that i noticed that when i started doing all this stuff i became a lot more charismatic because i have a very imaginative mind and when i just let it out and let it go crazy people would find it hilarious 
they'd be like, oh my God, this crazy bastard. He, he can really tell a story and all that. And, and like, I, I have that in me. And there was a point in my life, I seem quite like bubbly now, but there was a point in my life where I struggled with this stuff. I was like, you know, anxious and depressed and down and out and unoriginal and, you know, doing all these mistakes, the mistakes I don't do anymore. And it seemed to come from like behavior changes that do revolve around stuff that's semi-controllable maybe you can think of it more like uh, uh, the gym like if you go to the gym for a long time you'll eventually start seeing changes and so there's something to it there's a door you can open to the deep mind and so what we're gonna look through is what Jung found when he went on that adventure and so a lot of the theories I presented here came actually from observing people as I'm working with them, say to overcome their anxiety, say to use this Jungian knowledge to make themselves more creative, a litany of different things, improving their performance by getting into flow state. I've been trying all that stuff. I've been trying it out with lots of different people because I wanted to flex a little bit and see what's going on and see, like, you know, put my fingers in many pies and see what's going on. And I see this coherent, consistent theme. It seems to be about using your brain right and when you use your brain right it makes you a more powerful creative and authentic person it brings you in touch with the deep force inside of you and usually your obstacle is this ego this 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 conscious mind and all that and i know it kind of sounds new agey and all that but there, there is something to it only the problem is a lot of the people in these new age movements or these i don't know like kill your ego and all that stuff they're just using jargon they don't actually understand what they're talking about whereas this stuff i have failed to that I'm the type of person who doesn't like jargon. I am an anti-jargonite. And so I fail test a lot of this stuff to make sure it's real. And hence I'm presenting you, to you something that definitely works and I definitely think is going to provide a, a good foundation for a lot of my thinking going forward. So if you want to work with me in this facility, I will leave a link down below. In the link, you will have a chance to fill out several things. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Write to me. You can also organize a call with me there. If you want, you can get in touch with me specifically and we can see how we can work together. Now, I'm also going to do a write-up about all these slides because some of these, I really like the models I created. They kind of sparked in my mind as I was doing this stuff and I was thinking, okay, this is this is really, really useful way to visualize what I'm seeing, what I'm trying to say, even though it's a little bit derp mode. So I'm going to do an email write-up on a lot of this and paint these concepts with a bit more clarity. And if you want to get on that, it will be in the same link. So if you're interested in this, pop down into that link. You can work with me. You can get the emails. You can get all the juice. Call it the magic link if you want. Call it the portal to Narnia if you want. I don't mind at all. And in the meantime, I'm going to play us out with a song. Boyo Redacted Alert. Stay redacted, juicy. Love you all. All my days, they never end. All the weeks gone in a flash. Time she's taking me down like a weapon. She's like a weapon on. All my days, I let it go. Now I knock on heaven's door Time she's taking me down like a weapon She's like a weapon on oh. Pressure makes the soul a diamond But all I see is whining in this world Where the painted is a frame of mind and Yet we wash away the sand that we should draw the line in Then we leave behind the people who are undecided And can you feel it in the air and I don't mean the climate Compare the walking dead to boyos when their hearts are shining And maybe there will be a time when we are undivided But history is like a wave and we must learn to ride it Though everybody's looking down, there's a new horizon Though everybody's lost in deceit and compromising I'm here to tell you that belief is on the up and rising And though they tell you that it's lost, man, they cannot hide it 
There are people on the streets screaming fuck the tyrants There are people on the internet revealing lies in You were thinking you're alone and you're just surviving While all of them have put their life on the line for you All my days they never end All the weeks gone in a flash Time she's taking me down like a weapon She's like a weapon on All my days I let it go Pressure makes the mind a stone Adrenochrome flows through my blood But when I feel a man is fucking cold I look around and see the demon sitting on the throne And they are screaming at me Heaven is a waste of hope They tell me play the game And that's the way you'll learn to grow They told me yesterday's a memory you will never own But I'm infected with an energy that's feeling gold Then I am calling on the spirit when I feel alone But I need evidence So I'm up in heaven shaking at the door Screaming at the Lord What do you expect? Then God I'm pleading on my knees I don't mean disrespect But why was I created with the weight of intellect? Well they call it a disease that everyone will get They call us parasites on the world that we infect And though they say the day will come when we conquer death Who will bring the message that we are already blessed? All my days they never end All the weeks gone in a flash Time she's taking me down like a weapon She's like a weapon on All my days I let it go Now I knock on heaven's door Time she's taking me down like a weapon She's like a weapon on